to that. So as we prepare for this, we're going to go to I mean, we're going to go to two major passages. If you want to take your Bibles, go to Luke chapter twenty-two to start us out this evening. Everything that we're going to look at at the beginning of the message tonight is looking at what Jesus did, if you will, at what was the introduction to the Lord's table, or what we'll be doing here in just a few moments. Everything in the Seder dinner, by the way, is going to be a full, expansive demonstration of everything that would have taken place on the night of Passover. We get a small smattering of what would have taken place at that time when Jesus sat down with his disciples and had, if you will, the Last Supper. That's what we know it as, but technically what they were celebrating was the Passover, which had happened many years earlier. And we'll see that as we go through the text. And I've outlined uh, uh, the word Passover every time it appears in the text to accentuate what was Jesus doing and why. Luke chapter 22, verse 7, and we'll go down through verse 20 tonight. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he, speaking of Jesus, sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Father, I pray now that you would move our hearts tonight. Lord, this isn't meant simply to be a, a lesson and a history lesson on things that took place on that wonderful yet awesome night when you sat with your disciples and began to share with them what would take place in your personal life. The same night that uh, not only would you share about your death that was impending, but also as Judas and others came to take the Lord Jesus, our Savior, away to be crucified that same night. So Lord, I pray as we look at this very special time that you spent with those that were the closest to you. Father, I pray that uh, tonight we truly might just spend a moment and say, Lord, I, I want to get closer to you tonight. If I can, can I sit at your table tonight? Can I lean on your breast as you explain what's going to take place tonight? So, Lord, I pray that you do in our hearts tonight what only you can do. Would you break our hearts, Lord, for what you went through would you help us to realize how precious your life is? Willingly, you gave it for each and every one of us. Father, might we realize that beautiful, beautiful and important fact tonight. Meet with us now in a special way, Lord, and we'll ask you to bless it. If anyone is here or watching tonight that has never put their faith and trust in Christ, Lord, as a result of what takes place here, as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, would you bring them to yourself tonight? And we'll give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. Then came the, the day of unleavened bread. So the, the, the feast of unleavened bread, all these things are spoken about in detail in Leviticus chapter 23, which we won't go to tonight. But the feast of unleavened bread was a seven-day feast. The Passover, which was a one-day event, sometimes was referred to also as the feast of unleavened bread because it fell within the first day, if you will, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When we, and again, when we go through the Seder, we'll go through all the different things that historically and biblically were 
done when the Jewish people would celebrate or remember the Passover. So it's very, very intricate. But for seven days, they would take all unleavened bread out of their house. They'd sweep the place. They'd make it as clean as possible. No leavened bread, nothing with leaven in it was allowed to be in the home. All of that was taken out. And the answer is why? Well, leaven or sin, symbolic of sin, couldn't be in the house. Absolutely nothing. Had to be clean, had to be pure, as the Jewish people would come to celebrate the Passover. It also tells us that that lamb would have to be slain. Now, of course, uh, and again, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He had to be slain. That was foreordained by God since the foundations of the world. And uh, the disciples said, okay, it's a yearly event. Every single year, the Jewish people had to. They had to celebrate the Passover, at least uh, uh, maybe celebration is an overstatement, but they had to, if you will, invoke uh, the Passover. But it was a joyous time for the Jewish people because what did the Passover represent? It represented freedom from the Egyptians. So they're down in Egypt, they're in bondage, and all of a sudden God uh, brings 10 different plagues upon the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardens his heart, wouldn't let the Jewish people go, the Hebrew children or the children of Israel, all synonymous. And God finally said, this will get Pharaoh's attention, guaranteed. So what God did was, and you know uh, the story, and we'll, again, if you'll be here Friday, we'll get very intricate into it. So what takes place is, of course, God uh, uh, basically says to Moses, tell the people, listen, kill a lamb, take the blood, and put it over the doorpost, the lintel of your home, and the death angel will literally pass through and every single person who does not have the blood, as I'm telling you to apply it, when the death angel comes, he will pass over your home and not kill your firstborn. But all those in Egypt who will refuse, if you will, to follow the mandates by God and refuse to apply the blood, poetic pause, anyone who refuses to apply the blood to their home, their firstborn child, male child, will die. A horrible, horrible event that would take place, but yes, it would get Pharaoh's very significant attention. Verse 11, then you shall say to the master of the house, listen, uh, disciples, uh, where where do we go, uh, Lord? We don't have any place to go. How are we going to know where to eat the Passover? And he says, you, you don't worry about it. Just do exactly what I tell you, and things will work out. So they uh, obviously they go out, they find this individual that Jesus said would be there, and, uh, and I believe it's a, a divine thing that, that the Lord, of course, knew this person was going to be there. He would have a room for uh, people to, if you will, celebrate or follow the Passover. Now, this was something that was rather common from the historical narrative that uh, the Jewish people that lived in Jerusalem, it was common for them to have rooms set aside so when Jewish people would come from around the, the known world at that time, they would have a place literally to eat, if you will, and celebrate the Passover. So he said, when you find this person, the one with the water jug, then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? All right, so again, it's a cultural thing. They, uh, the Lord knew that it would exist. Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room 
there make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So if you go to Israel, and uh, I'm uh, going to try and get back there in 2023 if the, the borders stay open, so I'll encourage folks, if you're thinking about going to Israel, we'll show you this place. Now, of course, uh, this particular building, if you look to the top room with a little bit of a dome on it, uh, that is what uh, is currently known as the upper room. Now, folks, I'm, I, I hate to disappoint uh, the tourists, but that was built uh, quite a bit time after uh, Christ's time. But it's uh, basically symbolic of uh, an upper room, and I'm sure it was similar uh, to what took place. You walk into, and you can see a little light in the, the middle of the screen. You walk in that door, and there, I mean, it's a pretty good-sized room. You could fit a whole lot more than 12 people in it. Uh, we put 50 in that room, a little snug with 50, but... Uh, basically what he's saying is there is an upper room probably very similar to what you're looking at right now and Jesus said this is where we're going to uh, eat the Passover dinner verse 14 when the hour had come he Jesus sat down and the 12 apostles with him now again the Greek language sometimes uh, translators take a little bit of uh, liberty with it there's multiple ways this can be looked at uh, the word sit is appropriate, sat is appropriate, but the real meaning should be reclined. And if you go to the Old Testament, it'll back that up. The disciples didn't come in and sit at a nice table and chairs. They literally came and they would sit down, as you see on this picture, where they would literally recline at the table. And that's actually the way the Passover was meant to be done. Uh, they didn't sit there and have a big, long meal. They, they came in. They, they, it was a quick thing. It's like, hurry up, uh, eat the Passover meal, because when the death angel comes, immediately after that, it's time to uh, put your, uh, you should have your shoes on, you should have your belt on, you should have your staff in your hand. Bam, you should be ready to run out the door as soon as that death angel comes through, because as soon as Pharaoh says, get those people out of Egypt, it's time to run, folks, and God's deliverance will take place. And that's exactly how it went down. Verse 15, then he said, Jesus said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I, what? Suffer. Now, Jesus had told the disciples multiple times already that he was about to die. The disciples, again, we made it very clear, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. You remember Peter getting in, in uh, the face of Jesus saying, no, Lord, cannot take place. Uh, it, they still didn't get it. Uh, but he's telling them over and over again, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die. But uh, when you're with somebody and you hear those words, and it's like, what are you talking about? This can't be. And, and, and you just deny what you hear. It, it doesn't register. And that's exactly how the disciples were approaching this. But then Jesus goes on. He makes a, a, a more strong statement here. And he says, for I say to you, and again, he's talking to his disciples, some others that might have been in the room, I will no longer eat of it, speaking of the Passover, until it is fulfilled in the what? The kingdom of God. Now, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he spent some 40 days on this earth, and he was gone. Has he eaten the Passover on this earth since? No. Uh, when he comes back after the rapture of the church, after the seven-year tribulation, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, kingdom, did I say that word? Yeah, I think so. 
When Jesus Christ comes back, will he celebrate the Passover with everyone? Absolutely he will. And uh, this will be fulfilled at that time, which is, of course, yet future. Verse 17, Then Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, when Jesus uh, uh, taught the disciples uh, the prayer, he's like, listen, uh, be praying uh, for the kingdom to come where my will will actually be done right here on this earth. And, and they were looking forward, and that's where the Jewish people and, and many even Gentiles today uh, missed the point because they looked and it's like, where's the Messiah? Where's this powerful ruler? Where's the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And yet Jesus, as we saw in Isaiah 53 this morning, first time he came was not to be King of kings and Lord of lords, but to be the suffering servant, to be the sacrificial lamb, which is exactly why he came. And Jesus said, listen, uh, we're going to eat this uh, Passover together, but the next time we do it will be when, indeed, the kingdom will be right here on this earth. Oop, I want to back up one. You'll see four cups sitting there. That's very much on purpose. For those of you that will be at the Seder this coming Friday, we will have four different cups. There's four different cups to the Seder meal, which I will explain on Friday for those that are there. Another reason you say, are you doing a commercial? Well, maybe. Uh, but if you are, are, this is just such important information that we'll be going through. So what you've already seen, and, and back up to verse 17, has he taken a cup at this point? Has he taken a cup? Look my head. Yes, <laughs> he has. And he said, divide this one among yourselves. There are four cups that take part during the Seder meal, and we're going to see this repeated now in a couple uh, uh, in the next verses. Also then now, and here's how we celebrate, if you will, communion. What do we do first? Well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it lays out our guidelines as to how to take communion. The first thing we always take is the what? The bread. So we eat the bread, and that, as you'll see in a Seder demonstration, there's a very specific times when we, if you will, break bread together and eat it. Well, this is coming up to that point. Now they break the unleavened bread. Again, unleavened because no sin could be there. Don't have time to wait for yeast to rise. This is quick. Has to happen quick. So they're doing everything extremely quick. And, of course, if you got leaven, what do you got to do, ladies, men that cook? You got to wait till it rise, right? You don't have time. So it's very quick. Uh, in fact, we actually had a conversation about this about a year ago. And uh, uh, the, the absolute specific meaning here is haste. We don't have time to sit around and wait for the, for the yeast to rise because when God makes that deliverance, <laughs> get going. Now, when we get into the New Testament, it, it gives us a little more example about uh, leaven certainly having a symbolic concept or metaphor to the concept of sin. So Jesus now, he's with his 12 disciples. He takes the unleavened bread. He gives thanks and breaks it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in what? Do this in remembrance of me. Hey, guys, uh, every time you do this now, 
I want you to think about me. I want you to remember what's going to take place. Right now, still a bit foggy for him, but he's like, this is going to have significance all the way throughout the church age and into eternity. Very, very important what God's doing here. Verse 20, likewise, he also took the what? After supper. So you say, well, wait a minute. This is just a redundant thing about what he just did. No, it's not a redundant thing. This is a separate cup that Jesus is taking. It's part of, if you will, the the Seder meal. So this is another cup that he's taking. And again, there'll be a total of four that will be taken throughout uh, a, a Seder dinner. So likewise, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, yes, you've been under the Mosaic law for a long, long time. You've been stuck under the bondage of of the law. You've uh, 613 commandments that we've asked you to keep that you can't. And he says, listen, I got a new covenant for you. I got got a brand new one, and it's all about grace. It's all about my love for you. And uh, here's my new covenant. And uh, they would understand that more as the days went on after the resurrection of Christ. So let's go now to uh, the more familiar passage. So we looked at every single thing that was taking place when Jesus was there was, if you will, setting the stage for what we now practice as the Lord's table or the Lord's supper or communion, all synonymous terms. Some people, I don't prefer to use the term, call it the Eucharist. Uh, I prefer not to use that term, but uh, certainly the other ones I think are very appropriate. So now we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is the common passage that uh, no matter uh, if you've come from a Bible-believing church, most pastors will go to this passage as folks prepare their hearts to take communion. And you're very familiar with this passage, but let's drill down just a hair on it and make it really alive tonight. For Jesus said, I received from the, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now I'm just going to say this very quickly because Many of you have come from uh, different denominations and you've heard different things about what takes place at communion. There are three different ways that you can look at this particular verse. And I'm going to give you a fancy word and then I'll break it down into simple English. There are those that believe in what's known as transubstantiation. In other words, what does that mean? And some of you came out of uh, churches like this where uh, usually a priest is standing in the front of the congregation and there are elements which are usually kept behind uh, the person on an altar. Inside that is the bread and the cup. And in transubstantiation, which is basically a theological term that means this, literally changing into the body and blood of Christ. All right, that is one uh, a position that some people hold, uh, that the, the elements literally change into the body and blood of Christ. You say, well, Brother Rich, do you subscribe to that position? The answer is no, and we'll explain why. The second position, which is a little less 
on the scale uh, of it's less than transubstantiation. We then go to consubstantiation. And some of you have definitely come out of churches that uh, practice that. You say, well, what does that mean? What it means is that the elements do not change outside of the body, but as soon as you eat them or drink them, that the elements change within you. Consubstantiation. You say, all right, uh, does Union Grove Baptist Church hold to either one of those? The answer is no, and here's why. If you look at the text, it says, Jesus said, yes, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in what? It's a remembrance of, of Christ. It's not a literal changing of the, uh, the items. And if you did it, I mean, nobody's going to do this, but if you did a DNA test on things and tried to prove it from a scientific standpoint, uh, the elements don't change. When the, when, when the grape juice enters your mouth, what does it taste like? It tastes like grape juice. Now, folks, and I don't mean to be gross, but uh, just to make a point, uh, how many of you, uh, you prick your finger on something that starts bleeding and you do one of these? You, 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 most of you have a clue what blood tastes like versus grape juice or, or of course, uh, uh, wine, if you will, so you know the difference. So these things didn't change. When you eat the little wafer, the wafer does not change. Well, why did God have us do it then? Just remember them. Every time we pick up that unleavened bread, every time we pick up the cup, every time, if you will, we celebrate from a little distant concept, the Passover meal, where we remember what Jesus did, we take those elements literally to remember him. Well, let's move on. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Why? Because uh, the, the, the bread that we have, if you remember what Jesus went through when his skin was broken, when his body was pierced, when he was beaten to a bloody mess by the cat of nine tails, when the Romans scourged him, when they took the long uh, thorns out of Israel and slammed uh, the crown if you will, of thorns upon his head and the blood spews out and his body, which was given to pay for our sins. Not only was his skin broken, but the blood poured from his body. Most people that were scourged uh, suffered extreme blood loss. Many would die under uh, the extreme excruciating pain that would take place as well as the horrific blood loss that would happen and Jesus said listen every time uh, you pick up uh, that little communion cup and every time uh, you take the little wafer I want you to think about what my body went through because I love you every time you you take the grape juice which symbolizes the blood I want you to to remember how my blood was poured out on, on the streets and on the cross and in the place of scourging. I want you to remember that. What else does he say? Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Folks, not only do we remember what Jesus did, but now we need to proclaim what he did. Every time we meet together as a body and we share the elements together, we're talking about what Jesus did. And I have the privilege of standing up here and delivering that message. But we're proclaiming the death and the burial and the suffering 
and the heartache that Jesus went through to provide us a place of eternity in heaven. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What is that unworthy manner? And you'll see that twice in the text that we're looking at. Dishonorable way, a worthless way, an undeserving way. What is God saying here? Multiple things. To partake, if you will, of the elements before one truly knows Jesus Christ as their personal Savior is quite frankly an exercise in futility. You may be remembering Christ, even if you're an unsaved person, one that's never placed their faith in Christ, but it basically has no value at that point. What God is saying, when God's people come together, and what book of the Bible are we looking at, by the way, right now? What book? Corinthians. The Corinthians church was a mess. If we go back to the beginning of this passage that we've been looking at, the Corinthian church would come together, just like we're doing right now except they do, some, do uh, the Lord's table a little bit differently. So we had the, the rich folk that had a bunch of food, a bunch of, uh, uh, of beverages, i.e. fermented wine, and they would get together uh, down in the gym on the right side of the gym, and uh, the left side of the gym had folks that barely uh, had no food, had, had no, nothing to drink, very poor, and all of a sudden here's what was taking place in that Corinthian church. This side over here basically went nana, nana, nana to the other side. And it's like, yeah, you stay over there. Uh, we got, here, here's where the rich folk are. You poor people stay over there. Stay away from us. I want nothing to do with you. No, you can't touch my food. You can watch me eat. You can say, well, good for you. You're the best in town. And that's literally what was happening. And God chose the Corinthian church out a few verses before this, this part. In fact, I don't want to just say it. Let's go to it. Let's uh, take your Bibles if you aren't there, and I'm not there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's just see what was happening in that church and why God was a bit upset with it. All right. There we go. All right, let's go to verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 11. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In other words, yeah, these are the elite, if you will, of the Corinthian church, and they were put on... Uh, if you will, a pedestal. Verse 20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So what's God saying? He's pointing out what? He's like, that's an unworthy way to come to the table. It's an unworthy thing. It's wrong. It's despicable. It shouldn't be done. Why do we love to call, and and I just love to call this church that God's love is building. Far be it from us ever to do this. If anyone's hungry, you eat for free. 
If you got tons of money and want to pay for your meal and a few others, God bless you. But everybody eats at the table. And we're talking not just about the Lord's table. We're talking about down in the gym when we have dinners and so forth. Nobody's exempt. It's not just the rich versus the poor and the poor versus the rich or the middle class. None of that. There's no class here. There's one class. It's called the body of Christ made up of sinners. Every single, one of us, every single one of us is a sinner regardless of how much money we have in the bank. And God says, when you come together, this is de- deplorable. What I want you to do is come together in a worthy manner, not in an unworthy manner. I want you to love each other. I want you to remember what Jesus Christ did for you, how he poured out his life, how he had his skin tore apart, how his blood was shed, how his life was given. I want you to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and rejoice in what Jesus did for you. But let a man examine himself, not just a man. We're speaking uh, uh, men and women here. But let a person, a, a man, a woman examine himself, and so let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Right, folks, this, is, this isn't a, 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 just a banquet to come together to do whatever it is you do. It's not a time for drunkenness. It's not a time for revelry. It's not a time for gluttony. It's a time where God's people are to get together and say, oh, my God, thank you for what you've done, done for me. Thank you for the life that you, that you gave for me. Thank you for the blood that you shed for me. And as a group, we, we bond together and thank God for what he's done. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, a despicable one, one that's not honoring to God, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning what? The Lord's body. You see, it's like throwing sand into the wombs of, of Jesus when we come to the table, if you will, and dishonor him. And I know that's no one's intent here. We're talking about what happened back in the Corinthian church, but God does ask us to examine ourselves before we take the table. And he tells us this, verse 30, finally, for this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. God's saying, listen, those folks in that corrupt Corinthian church that refuse to get right with God, God's basically saying, I had to take some lives, make a point. You see, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of mercy and a God of justice. And God says, if you're going to play games in church, he, he doesn't appreciate that. Uh, so he makes it very clear here that some actually were made weak, some were actually made sick, and some he actually took their lives to, in discipline, if you will, for failure to properly uh, pay respect to the Lord's table. Now with that said, let's try and get out of that negative tone for a moment, and let's go back to why we're here as a church body tonight. Thank you so much for being here, by the way, on a Sunday night like this where we truly, as this week, will look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on, on the first day of the week on Sunday. We'll come together and we'll rejoice about what Jesus has done for us. We'll shake each other's hands. We'll give each other hugs and uh, praise the Lord. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday on Resurrection Day. Why? Because of what Jesus means to us. You see, not a single one of us, and I'll close with this, not a single one of us, barring what Jesus did for us, had any hope of heaven. And now you walk into the church family, and uh, maybe you got a small family, only a couple of biological brothers and sisters, mom and a dad. 
you walk in here uh, like this morning at about 250, 260 brothers and sisters, and we all rejoice together because we're all here compatible with the Word of God. And every time you go visit a, another church when you're out of town, a Bible-believing church, and you walk in, and, and it's like, wow, uh, uh, well, it's good to see you. And why? And there's immediate camaraderie. When I was up in uh, Minnesota last week preaching up there, and, and, and I walk in, and it's just like I never left. It's like the, the folks come, and, and they're excited, and it's my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we just have a big old love fest, folks. It's great. Why? Because we're all part of that beautiful, wonderful body of Christ. So now as we, if we will, take a moment, we're going to uh, take our communion but I want us to remember the Passover. I want us to remember the blood that was shed. I want us to remember uh, 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 the unleavened bread. I want us to remember, as, as Jesus asked us to, when we take the bread, that we remember his body, which was literally ripped to shreds for us. I want us to remember, if you will, please, uh, the blood that Jesus shed to pay for our sins.